So we're back in our text, chapter 16. We've entitled it, The Need for the Holy Spirit, and that may have different connotations to each one of you, but stay with us uh, this morning. In chapter 16, although the Lord Jesus Christ, we know, has instructed prior to this, his apostles regarding his going away and also the Holy Spirit's coming. That instruction has happened way before this. And also the fact that they will be persecuted. We've had this week break, so I just want to remind us of the early part of chapter 16. In chapter 16, verses 1 through 15, I mentioned two weeks ago that I believe that's one unit that should all go together, in my opinion, <clears throat> because it is dealing with the specifics, or I think the title was uh, that Jesus is now teaching with specificity. The idea is he's now getting into some of the specifics of what he's been talking about. And he's going to get into the details here. And I think the text unfolds itself. I don't need to outline it. The text outlined itself for me as I studied. In verses 1 through 4, and we have these expressions here, he's still teaching because he says, I have spoken. And the key behind that, and we had that two weeks ago, is I have spoken. Why? To keep you from stumbling. The reason he has given them instruction and is continuing to talk even about the persecution is he does not want them to be surprised. He does not want them to be caught in a trap and then can't get out when it's too late. And uh, we spoke about that last time. And then in verses 5 through 7, our text for this morning, the second area is that he is going, verse 5. But now I am going. And the reason he's going is it's for their advantage, according to verse 7. And we'll be expounding on that in just a moment. The third section here that we have is verses 8 through 11, and this is amazing, that he will send. So he is speaking, he is going, and then in the end of verse 7 and into verse 8, he is going to send, that is the Holy Spirit, and the reason is to convict the world, which is amazing. And then the last part of it is verses 12 through 15, and again, it explains itself, because then he says, I have more things to say, and that's the expression, and they are not able to handle it at the present time. So from those four expressions, we've taken down and broken the passage into four specific areas. And so in the first four verses, which we dealt with last time, just to bring us in the context to verse 5, we have seen that the Lord Jesus Christ reminded them that they will face persecution. They had heard about persecution they had seen Jesus Christ being persecuted, and it's one thing to see him being persecuted. It's another thing when the persecution comes to you. And we spent the whole message on that. It is very easy for us today to hear about persecution and, oh, yeah, it's going to come, and to see others when they're in persecution. And when it comes to us, it's a different story. Now the rubber meets the road. And so he told them, now it's going to shift and you will be thrown out of the synagogue. And your families will reject you. We talked about that two weeks ago. And he said in verses 1 through 4, not only that, he said the idea is that I don't want you to be caught into a trap. And he uses this word specifically in this context with being trapped. And that's why he's reminding them. I don't want you to get involved so that when the persecution comes, you're saying, what happened? How did I get here? How did this happen to me? Because then it's too late. And so he's reminding them in verses 1 through 4. 
Now we get into the specifics regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit from verse 5 all the way down and through verse 15. But we're going into three different areas. He's going to reference the Holy Spirit with specifics to them. That's this morning. Secondly, he will reference the Holy Spirit in his ministry to the world. That's amazing. And then thirdly, he will reference the Holy Spirit and his work not just to the apostles, not just to the world, but for the future because they couldn't handle it at the particular time, and that will happen after the departure of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's where we are in the text. The title is The Need for the Holy Spirit. Let's deal with the context first, and then you'll see your outline in the back of the bulletin. We're going to deal with who the Holy Spirit is a little bit this morning, who we really are, and really what I want to concentrate on is why we need the Holy Spirit, and that's the last part of the message. But in order to be true to the text, we need to understand what it's saying. So let's look at the text. In verse 5, this creates a problem because it has to be a reconciliation here. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where I am going. Now, if you've been with us through the study, or if you know John's gospel, this should automatically present a problem to you. It should. Why? Because if you know the word of God, we got a difficulty here. We have to reconcile something. Scripture does not go against itself. Well, what does he mean when he says, none of you are asking me? For example, turn with me to just, just in John, chapter 13, verse 36. Chapter 13, verse 36. Remember this? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me. So Peter raised the question in chapter 13. Chapter 14, verse 5, remember this is when he said, don't let your heart be troubled, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way, or how do we know the way? So the questions have been asked, where are you going? And now he says in chapter 16, none of you asked me where I'm going. What's the matter? Doesn't John know what he wrote in 13 and 14? Of course he does. So how do we reconcile it? It is honestly hard to know in, the sense, in this sense that we are not in the circumstances. We don't see the expression and everything else. But I think the immediate context helps us a great deal. And that's why, again, we need to take a hard look at what the scriptures say. You'll notice in verse 6, it says, he doesn't just stop there. He says, but. And he says, because. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow, and this is a key, has filled your heart. Because he says that he's going away, sorrow has filled their hearts. What is the problem? The disciples, the apostles, were more concerned about their own persecution. They were more concerned about the Lord Jesus Christ going away. They were not concerned about him. They were concerned about themselves. How do we know that? Well, in chapter 14, verse 1, and I'm going to go back to 14 again, but it says, let not your heart be troubled. They were sorrowed. Believe in God, believe also in me. As soon as they knew he was going away, they had sorrow. In verse 8, even after he has this conversation with, of chapter 14 with uh, Philip and Thomas and so forth, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. 
show us he's concentrating on himself. Go to chapter 16, verse 6. Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. If they really understood who Jesus Christ was, if they really understood what Jesus Christ was teaching them, if they really understood where he was going as he's instructed them, their question would have been in this realm, where are you going in the sense of wanting to know what that was all about rather than themselves? Now you say, how do you know that? Look at chapter 14, verse 28. All of this is the context. All of chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, I said that to you before, and into 17 is all when he's teaching his apostles. So you've got to look at the whole picture. In chapter 14, verse 28, what had he told them? You heard that I said to you, now watch this, it's the same concept. I go away and I will come to you. Now watch. If you loved me, you would have done what? Rejoiced. If you really loved me, you would have been so excited because I'm going back to the Father. That's what he says. Look it. You would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, and the, for the Father is greater than I. And all through this, they have been doing what? Sorrow. 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 Why? They're looking at themselves. They're not looking at Christ. They're not looking at the, him going to the Father. We talk about heaven. We want to rejoice and be in heaven. Great. And we want to know all about it. Here the he says, I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to be there. I'm even preparing a mansion for you. He's trying to comfort them. All they're thinking about is me, 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 me. And so in the context of chapter 16, when he says, because I have said these things, you have sorrow. Sorrow's filled your heart. You shouldn't be that way. You're not asking me where I am going. He knew what they asked in chapter 14 and 15, but it wasn't for his benefit, it was for theirs. Because all they cared about was Jesus Christ has been with me, teaching me, instructing me, giving me guidance, and now he's leaving, and where are you going? What's going to happen to us? Rather than, praise the Lord, we should be rejoicing. You're going where we're going to be. So what you're dealing with is there's more concern about self than Jesus' relationship to the Father or the fact that this will benefit the Lord Jesus Christ as he even intercedes. They should have been filled with joy. They're filled with sorrow in the way they expressed it. Dr. Carson, D.A. Carson, expresses it this way. He illustrated it this way. Maybe this will help you. It helped me a little bit. In explaining this passage, he says, and I quote, a little boy disappointed that his father had suddenly been called away for an emergency meeting when both the boy and his dad had expected to go fishing together. They were supposed to go fishing. He's being called away. He says, ah, oh, dad, where are you going? But really, he didn't care anything about learning the destination of what his father was going to do. The question was really one of protest. The unspoken question was, why are you leaving me? and what we were supposed to do. The disciples have been asking several questions of that sort. They have not really asked thoughtful questions about where Jesus is going and what it means for him. They've been too self-absorbed in their own loss and what it means to them. And I think that's the best explanation that I've seen on it because the context bears that out. They were still not concentrating. They had asked questions 
but only out of concern for themselves. They weren't looking elsewhere. Okay? Their concern is not for him and his welfare, but it's for them. And yet, isn't it amazing how the Lord Jesus Christ still reacts? After giving the contrast and saying, because I have said these things, you've had sorrow, he still graciously encourages them in verse 7 by saying this. But in contrast to their reaction, we've got his reaction. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage. You're not going to concentrate on me, but I'm in your in sorrow, but it is to your advantage that I go away. Why? And here it is. Because the helper, if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In the bottom line, he encourages them when, in fact, they should have been totally rebuked. He still encourages them, and he says, the helper. And by the way, that's the Holy Spirit. If you have any question on that, let's just look in John for a couple of quick verses. John 14, 16, go back there. There it says, because he used the same expression, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another and for those of you that are familiar with it, that is another alas, another of the same kind. I will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Verse 26 of chapter 14, it says, But the helper, notice this, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you things. And then again in chapter 15, verse 26, just prior to our text, he says, When the helper comes, whom I will send from the Father. Who is that? The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. So the helper here in verse chapter 16, verse 7 that he refers to, we know is the Holy Spirit. So it's still to their advantage the Holy Spirit comes. Now who is he? If you're a believer, you probably take it for granted. But let me just mention a couple of things and get to the heart of the issue. Who is the Holy Spirit anyway, and why do we need him? Now if you're a believer here today, you may be saying, yeah, the world needs him. Hold on. Who is he? Plain and simple, let me just give you a couple of things that we need to understand. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Godhead. John 14, 20, uh, 16 should have sealed that for you just in this morning's message. He's going to give another one just like me. Well, if the Holy Spirit is God, keep this in mind, folks. Don't take it for granted. That means if he's God, he's got all the attributes of the Godhead. Which means what? The Holy Spirit is without sin. Which means what? He's love, joy, peace, all the other things that we find in the person of God. Secondly, he is a person. He's not just an influence. If you look at, by the way, he does guide us. But it's a real person that we're dealing with. Just like Jesus Christ is a real person, just is a real person, just like the Father is a real person, the Holy Spirit is a real person. You'll notice in verse 7 it says that it's your advantage, the helper when he comes, but if I go, I will send him to you. In verse 8 it says, and he, when he comes, verse 13, if you notice that, jump down to verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take of mine. What am I trying to say? He's not just an influence. He's not just some spirit that's out there someplace. He is the real person, but God is spirit in his essence. So is the Holy Spirit. But he's a real person. These are all masculine personal pronouns. 
So it's very clear that he's dealing with a person. Third, as a member of the Godhead, that means he's always been at work. He was there in creation. He was there in the Old Testament working. He is there in the New Testament working, now though it is in a different capacity. One other important thing. If the Holy Spirit is God, and he is, then according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that's why we find that, the Spirit of God is able to take the things of God and explain them to us so that we can have the mind of God. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you want the reference, verses 10 to 13 says. We would never, ever get this. We would never, not sometimes, never be able to understand the things of God unless the Spirit of God gave us the understanding, because it is He. That's why we can't even understand the things yet that are prepared for us, the, the ones that God has loved. We can't even begin to comprehend it, but the Spirit of God knows it all. Okay, there's the Holy Spirit. Who are we? And I want you to catch this. Who are we? Well, obvious, Pastor Dan. Just a couple of quick things. We are created beings, yes. We're finite. We're flesh. We're blood. He's spirit. We're flesh. He's he, we're flesh and blood. He's spirit. Big contrast. He's God. He's infinite. We're not. We're human. We are finite. Second, he is holy. What are we? Unholy. Plain and simple. Romans chapter 3, right? There is none righteous. How many? None. No, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We, by our nature, are sinners. We are absolutely opposite of who God is. We are absolutely opposite of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, you know this well. I want you to see it. Jeremiah 17. Keep your finger right back in John. You guys are already quoting it. <laughs> Jeremiah 17. Verses 9 and 10. The what? The heart. The real you. The real me. The real Pastor Dan. The heart is more deceitful than any or all else. Our hearts are deceived. That's us. That's not God. Don't finish. And it is what? Desperately. Some say wicked. Some say sick. You got the point. Our hearts are desperately wicked. And notice verse 10. I, not you, not me, I, the Lord, search the heart, and I'm the one that tests the mind. You can't even test your own mind, neither can I. Impossible. Even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deed. So when we look at the contrast, here is God, holy, all-powerful, infinite. Here we are, finite, all sinful, with a wicked and deceitful heart. Hold on to that. So why do we need the Holy Spirit then? Well, it should be obvious if I went no further. Why do we need the Holy Spirit let me tell you the first point. You would never, ever, ever, nor would I, ever, ever come to salvation apart from the work of God. No man, it's interesting, when we talk about people making decisions for Christ, let me cut right through at the bottom line. No one makes a decision for Christ on his own. 
Someone doesn't just wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm going to decide, I think it's a good thing today. It's a nice day, it's cool, it's warm yet and comfortable. Today, yeah, I'll trust Christ. Let me just read to you Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead. I've been to a lot of funerals. When someone's dead, they're dead. No life whatsoever. Not an inkling of life. Not an inkling or to carry on a conversation. Dead. He says, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, by the way, in which you formerly, in chapter 2. So, number one, it's obvious to salvation. Now, I'm not going to dwell on that other than to say this, and I'll tell you why I'm not going to. Because in verses 5 through 7, that's not the main point. In verses 8 through 11, he will deal with the Holy Spirit convicting the world and bringing them even to conviction so salvation is possible. So I'm not going to dwell on it. But if you are here without Christ, all this service this morning has been directed to the concept of the cross of Christ. Why? He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come unto the Father but by Jesus Christ. He's the only way to the Father. He's the only way to heaven. We, in and of ourselves, are basically sinful. Now, more than that, when a person does become regenerate, the Holy Spirit indwells. And I'm speaking to an audience that knows that well. The Holy Spirit indwells, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, he's the down payment. We know we're truly saved. By the way, that's the true test. If any man has not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. If you are here without the Holy Spirit, I'm telling you right now, you are not a believer. And the reason we know we're going to heaven, the reason we know we're going to be in the presence of God is because of Ephesians chapter 1, which was part of your reading. He is the down payment. He is the deposit. He is the emblem. He is the seal so that God notices the Holy Spirit in us, and that's the true evidence of salvation. But here's the point that I really want to finish with and spend a few moments on. Why do we need the Holy Spirit? Well, we couldn't come to salvation, and we'll expand on that next time. But more importantly, what I want to talk to is believers, and I want you to listen carefully. I'm talking to myself. It is absolutely impossible. Did you hear what I said? Absolutely, and to wake those up that didn't hear, impossible. It's impossible to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit working in your life. Impossible. The battle is too great. Galatians chapter 5, I will quote it to you. You know it well. Listen. In Galatians chapter 5, in verses 16 and 17, it says this. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you, fellow believer, will not carry out the desires of the flesh. We know 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. He's holy. He's perfect. Our hearts are deceitful. For these are opposed to one another. Our flesh 
is opposed to the Spirit of God. Believers don't want to hear that. I don't like hearing that. But it's true. So that you can't, may not do the things that will be pleasing. In Romans chapter 7, because of time, I'm not going to turn there, but you need to have it. In Romans chapter 7, in verses 14 to 25, please mark that down for your own benefit. The Apostle Paul, if I can summarize it, says this. He says, the things I want to do, I don't end up doing them. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And in that context, he says, and you debate all you want theologically about whether that's a believer or unbeliever. If you go out of here on dwelling on that, you have missed the whole morning message. He goes back and says, within me there is no good thing. But thanks be to God who can give me the victory. It is absolutely impossible. Turn with me to Matthew 16. I do want you to turn there. Another familiar passage. Matthew chapter 16. My intent was to read... Verses 13 to 24. But I'm going to do this. Beginning in verse 13, Jesus wanted to know, who did people say that I am? Verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon by Jonah, because flesh and blood your flesh, your blood did not real, reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You would never know that apart from me. And then he goes on to say, upon this rock, and I'm not going to expand on that. You should know what it says, but I will build my church. Jesus will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not even overpower it. I will build my church based on your statement. And just a few verses later, what happened? Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed. Be raised up on the third day. And here is outstanding Peter, spirit-driven Peter, turns around, takes him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned to him and said this amazing statement, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests. But man, just a few minutes earlier, Peter's turning around and saying, You're the Christ. Praise the Lord. Wonderful. Great. I'm saved. Two minutes later, Oh, no, not that. That's why it's impossible, absolutely impossible without the Holy Spirit to help us. We think that we can handle the Christian life ourselves. And I'm talking about me, and I'm talking about you. You think you can handle the Christian life yourself, in your own power. We go through this process. I'm saved. I know who the Holy Spirit is. 
I have the indwelling Holy Spirit. I can handle this circumstance. I don't want anybody to know about this. I'm okay. I'm strong. I know what the Word says. That is the way we try to walk through the Christian life. We can not do it. Unless the Holy Spirit has total control of our life, every single professing believer and those in the profession who truly know Christ will fall into sin if the Spirit of God isn't in control. Rather than listen to me, let me quote something to you that had to do with this text. And then I'm going to give you some examples and end in the positive. I was reading through this this week, as I do every day. This is one of the things that I read every day. It was interesting. It had nothing to do with the message until I read it. And this is a comment made by John MacArthur in his daily readings for the Christian life. And it had to do with Matthew chapter 16, interestingly enough, the passage that I had, verse 24. And here's what he says, and I quote, listen carefully. God makes sinners acceptable before him when they trust in Christ and stand clothed in the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. But even after salvation... A believer has no more godliness, or goodness, excuse me, in himself, his or her flesh, or humanness, than before salvation. To deny self is to make no provision for the flesh. Such an attitude and action, if genuine, will subject you to Christ's lordship and absolutely reject any self-centeredness. The truly redeemed sinner will have denied himself or herself so that to consider the members of their earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Self-denial is to lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, end quote. It is impossible, is what he's saying. You can't, even after regeneration, if you are not walking or I am not walking by the Spirit's power, there is no way we will have victory in our life. We will fail. Oh, we might deceive others. Oh, we might deceive ourselves. But we're not deceiving God. Listen, let me just jot down, share with you a couple examples. Adam and Eve had a perfect environment. There was only one thing that they were restricted from, and you know the story. That's all it took. All it took was for God to say, you can't do that, and they failed. Abraham, listen, so they failed in their choice. Abraham after being called out, after being told that he was the chosen one that God would build the nation of Israel from him, lied more than once to save his own neck. Moses, 
being the one to lead the nation of Israel out in his own frustration because of the way the people were, struck the rock and disobeyed God. David, the man after God's own heart, man after God's own heart, not only fell into adultery, literal adultery, but committed murder after God had made him king. You say, those are all Old Testament, Pastor Dan. You just used everything out of context. Hold on. Peter, in the context that we just looked at, after saying, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, turned around and because of what he didn't like that could happen to the one he loved, had the same Lord turn around to him and say, get behind me, Satan. You say, well, I don't know. That's not before the Lord Jesus Christ left, okay? It is Peter that we find in Galatians who, because of the pressure of the people around him, turned around and was changing doctrine and turned around and started going back to what was false doctrine, and Paul, the newer believer, had to come along and say to him, wait a minute, why are you doing that? Because Peter had failed even after saying those things. Hymenaeus and Alexander, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, had basically made a shipwreck of their faith. Why? Because they no longer had a good conscience. And those are all different areas. We're talking about lying. We're talking about frustration. We're talking about adultery. We're talking about murder. We're talking about doctrine. We're talking about even defiling the conscience. And these are all people that I've selected here in a very small selection. Just to show you, if you think you can live the Christian life by your own power, you are kidding yourself, and so am I. It cannot be done. Because the minute sin comes along, we will excuse it. We will excuse it, we will cover it, and we will deceive and do anything that's required. The power of flesh is stronger than we think. Why was it to their advantage? Because they couldn't walk with Christ when he went back to heaven. And they would have no means of having victory in their life. Yes, salvation had to come through him, but they would have no means of victory in their life unless the Holy Spirit came. And what I'm saying to you, Pastor Dan and you in that pew have no means of victory in your life unless the Holy Spirit is the one that's doing it. And you and I will deceive ourselves time and time and time Again, what's the positive fact of that? The positive is, let me just give you a couple of quick points. Here's what we must do. Number one, we must present, listen, according to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to give you the references, but for time, I'm not going to turn every one of them. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, often quoted by this pulpit, by many of you who teach. We need to present our bodies and our minds totally to the Lord every day and not even begin to adapt the thinking of the world. Because when we do, 
with the enemy of God. Would never say that. But God's word does. Two. According to Galatians chapter 5 that we read, we are to walk in the spirit and we won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. What does that mean to walk? It means to order our steps. It means to live by it. Go with me to Galatians chapter 5 for a second. I want to do that one. Two more. Galatians chapter 5. I mentioned verse 16, verse 18. But if you be led, the concept of walking, the concept of being led by the Holy Spirit, isn't you getting what you want, isn't me getting what I want. It's what the Spirit of God would want totally. And you notice he says you're not under law. Yeah, great, there it is. Now the deeds of the flesh, now watch this, are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities. And you know what? Honestly, as Christians, we stop right there. Why? Because the rubber meets the road the rest of the way. Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and those and things like these. He didn't even name them all because you couldn't end the list. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, Envying one another. It's pretty self-explanatory, folks. It's the advantage for the Holy Spirit to come. And what I'm trying to make you see, and the Lord's even burdening my own heart right here, is I can't live the Christian life without that advantage. Without the Holy Spirit, without walking in the Spirit, without being led in the Spirit, without being guided by the Spirit. Turn with me to Ephesians. It's close by. Ephesians chapter 4. We read Ephesians 1 this morning. How do we do this? How does this happen? Another point, present yourself, walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit. Just I'm throwing these out without giving numbers to them. He says, therefore I, the prisoner, employ you. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. You know that. He tells you, how do I do it? With all humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance to one another and love. Being diligent. I use every ounce of my body to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He goes on. You go down even further. Look at chapter 5 uh, of Ephesians. And he gives a practical in between. Verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. How tender was the Lord? How did he walk? Always with his focus on things above. Then he names all of these things that you see just jumping out in chapter 5 again, and he comes down to a well-known passage. How do I do it? Verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, 
but be filled. How do we do it? Be filled with the Spirit. How do I do that? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things. Um, in the name of our Lord, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject one to another in the fear of God. Wives, here's what you do. Verse 25. Husbands, here's what you, here's what you do. And he goes on and becomes very specific. Children, here's what you do, chapter 6. Slaves, here's what you do, chapter 6, verse 5. Masters, here's what you do. He goes on and on. We can't do that in our power. We need to be filled. We need to be controlled by the Spirit of God. We need to submit to God. We need to resist the devil. That's what we find in James. And I won't turn you there. James says, submit to God. James says, resist the devil. He'll flee. James says, draw near to God. He'll not draw near to you. You know, his disciples were so focused on themselves. I have no doubt, especially as you look at the apostles, you look at the early church, that they're no different from us. They thought they could handle everything. And they couldn't. And we have the Holy Spirit, so we can do it. And we deceive ourselves. We need to every single day have our mind and body committed to the Lord, presented to him fresh. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind every day. We need to be yielded to the spirit of God every day. Why? If I don't do that, Dan Trepandy, if I don't do that, I will end up with angry with sin. I will end up lying I will end up causing dissension. I will cause strife. I will all the way down the line, and it doesn't end there. You and I can go all the way to committing murder. I had a conversation with somebody recently, and I said to them, you really think you're capable of committing murder? And I said it to someone who I knew would be the furthest person in my mind that could do it. But it was a fellow believer. And the believer hesitated for a second and said, I guess under the right circumstances, I probably would. I say to you that you would, unless the Spirit of God. You see, we look at everybody else. And we look at the sins of everybody else. And we look at the falls of everybody else. And we never think it's possible for us. And part of the reason is, because we've got it all together. And all that is is selfishness, pride, arrogance, and everything else that comes along with it. I'm talking to me and you. What it means is to come back to the Holy Spirit, it's to your advantage that he comes. Because, Peter, because, disciples, you can't make it on your own. And he's going to talk about the conviction of the world. And we can't make it on our own. But praise God, like I just said, there's ways to do it. He's given us the Holy Spirit. It's to yield to him. The body needs one another. The body needs the Spirit of God to control our thinking, our actions, our motives. Because left alone, even as a believer, we will not choose what is right. The evidence is overwhelming in the New Testament, over and over, how the people of God chose the wrong way. 
I choose, you choose the wrong way when we're not yielded to the Spirit of God. But praise God, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Might God help us to present our minds and our bodies and our walk to the Spirit of God that he might control us just this week, just this day, so he can use us for his honor and glory. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you that as you were leaving your disciples, though they were focused on themselves, you reminded them that it was expedient, necessary for you to go away because if you didn't go, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come. And that's to our advantage. Father, we thank you that you have absolutely saturated the New Testament with the fact that we have this battle that goes on all the time as a believer. Praise God, we have the battle. But the unbeliever does not have that battle. Praise God that we don't have to rely on self. But Father, the Spirit of God, in accordance with the Word of God, can guide us so that we can have victory every day. Help us not to depend upon ourselves, no matter how long we've been saved as a Christian. Help us to continue to yield to the Spirit of God that you might have your way in our life, that, Father, you truly would be glorified in all that we're doing. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.